Hi, this is Julie Kelso, your host for this episode of the Making Waves podcast, brought to you by the Society for Freshwater Science. Before we begin, I would just like to insert a disclaimer that all opinions I express here are my own and no one else's, especially not anyone I ever have, do, or will work for. And now that that's taken care of, I can share with you my interview with Sunny Jardine, Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics at the University of Washington School of Marine and Environmental Affairs. And I started my interview by asking Sunny how she got started in the field of economics, specifically resource economics. So in terms of how I got into economics, you know, I did an undergraduate degree in environmental studies. And at the time, I was interested in what I was reading about how IMF policy was potentially contributing to deforestation in Costa Rica. So what was going on was that the IMF came in and the approach was to quit focusing on subsistence agriculture and start focusing on export crops. So larger scale production and things like fruits and ornamental flowers, which were different than the subsistence crops that people had been growing. So a lot of small scale farmers couldn't um, participate. You know, they didn't have the resources to participate in these new markets and they were being pushed out off of their land. And a lot of them were going to the forest, marginal lands and deforesting um, in order to grow subsistence crops to support their families. So there was a lot of, you know, qualitative information about this, and I was really interested in looking at this quantitatively, trying to measure these impacts, but it was really hard to tease out the impact of the IMF policy um, from this observational data and more generally look at causal questions when all you have is observational data and there's so much going on in the world, right? So I started looking at, you know, who who does this? Where there are there methods for doing this type of analysis? And it turned out that economists had been working for decades to build a toolkit to sort of address these types of questions. How would you describe what you do within the field of resource economics? And maybe what are some of the types of research questions that you focus on? In terms of, you know, what I do, well, I am look to answer two broad sets of questions. And the first is, given that people have incentives and they operate in a world of constraints, uh, whether it be government regulations and so on, what are going to be the outcomes for natural resources and the environment? And so oftentimes people derive benefits from accessing and using natural resources in the environment. But on the other side, they don't typically pay the full cost of using the environment or natural resources. So because of that, it might lead to different outcomes. And so I try and understand what are the outcomes that are going to emerge given the incentives and constraints that people face. And so what would be an example of work you have done looking at incentives and their possible outcomes? An example of that is, you know, we've done some work looking at mangrove deforestation. In a lot of countries, people are 
getting some benefit from their mangroves. Maybe they get firewood, but they can also use these forests and cut them down and put shrimp ponds in or oil palm. And they don't necessarily pay the full cost of those actions. Protection from coastal storms that might protect an entire community or when they cut the mangrove down, they don't necessarily have to compensate fishermen who were getting higher catches because the mangrove root system provided nursery habitat for juvenile fishes. So this this sort of commonality in natural resource and environmental issues that people don't necessarily pay the full cost of their actions leads to unique outcomes, and I'm really interested in what those are. And then the next set of questions is really, if we don't like those outcomes, what would be better and how to get there? So a concept I can grab onto from that example is nursery habitat for juvenile fishes. So do you ask questions like, what is the economic value of nursery habitat for juvenile fishes? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not really directly involved with valuation work myself. There are, you know, large groups of people that believe that nature is being systematically undervalued, right? And the question is, well, what are those values? And so there's a lot of different methods that people have developed that could help us understand those values. And, you know, it's really complicated to do this type of thing. If you think about juvenile fishes using wetlands or mangroves as nursery habitat, what is the value of that wetland? Well, that depends on to what extent those juvenile fishes using that habitat sort of feed into the population and become adult fishes and impact potentially commercial or recreational catches. And a lot of times that link is really hard to make, right? We see fish here, but if that habitat wasn't there, would all of those juvenile fish die? Would they go somewhere else? You know, where would they be? And then if you could understand the extent to which maybe commercial catches or recreational catches go up, then trying to understand what are the values of those commercial and recreational catches. Commercial catches is a little bit easier because there's market prices, but for recreational catches, people have high values for catching fish recreationally, but we never observe what those values are because oftentimes those fisheries are open access and so they're not paying. So we don't have that information based on them paying for the experience because they're not doing that. And then that's just probably one small component of the value of that wetland or the mangroves, right? Because those fish might also be valuable outside of people that are using them directly, maybe people are snorkeling, or maybe they become food for birds that people like to go and bird watch. And so there's all these ecosystem services and these values we need to understand when we're deciding whether we should replace this wetland with something else or what we're losing when wetlands are being degraded and so on. So rather than valuation of resources, it sounds like you more often assume the value is known and are looking at systems to assess uh, the costs and benefits of, say, wetland restoration? Yeah, in terms of wetland conservation, so I've done some work on wetland conservation in barrier island systems on the east coast of the United States. 
And there, we acknowledge that these values exist. We can find some of them in the literature. And so we have a sense of what we're losing as a society when wetlands are degraded by, for example, barrier islands rolling over. So given that we know that we're losing something that's valuable and there's people out there that are measuring those values, I sort of step in and I say, well, what, what should we do about this? Right? Should we be restoring at what rate, when? And so knowing these values is one part of a bigger question of what should we be doing. Well, what I'm just wondering is when you're evaluating these options of what we should do to preserve barrier islands, they're disappearing, right? Is that accurate? Well, that's <laughs> not necessarily how an economist would think about it. So something that unifies most of the field is this idea that we want to be in a situation where we're getting the most value out of a system that we can. And it's possible that the most value out of the system is just to let it do what it's going to do, let the barrier islands roll over and disappear and the wetlands also disappear. That's potentially the best option for society because restoration is really, really costly and we don't want to invest in those restoration projects. But it's also possible that the cost of restoration are more than paid for by the benefits in the increased ecosystem services that we're going to get out of restoring. So that's really an empirical question. It's a question that we want to bring science to to understand what should we do in this situation? How do we get the most value out of this system, the highest net benefits, when you consider the value of the ecosystem services that might be increased, but also all the costs associated with restoration? So the question of to restore or not to restore, depending on the cost and what the community values? Typically, we take a pretty broad perspective on this. And so one of the ecosystem services from wetlands and marsh area, for instance, is the carbon, not, you know, the peat layer that they have, so the stock, but also the flow of the sequestration that happens over time. And when we think about valuing that, we we think about um, how storing carbon reduces climate change and reduces the costs or damages from climate change that could potentially happen globally. And so the value from that system of having carbon there would be the avoided damages from climate change that could be happening around the globe. And that would be a value that we might want to invest in. So you could take a more narrow perspective, but economists tend to take a broader perspective on these things. Okay. Let's say I am a policymaker in the Chesapeake Bay region, and I want to create economic incentives or disincentives to reduce nutrient pollution in the Chesapeake Bay. What should I ask the economist I am working with? What will they need to know? Right. So economists really will frame their goals in terms of net benefits. And so less nutrients wouldn't necessarily be an economic goal but you would think about getting greater value out of the system, and there's going to be greater value when there are less nutrients. Let's say there are a lot of different ecosystem services, and 
it's possible that restoration in your small part of the world is going to impact people around the globe that care about maybe the species diversity that comes out of your restoration project. If you want to consider the total economic value of a restoration action, it does uh, make sense to consider all the values that are being generated. Some policymakers might have more of a narrow set of stakeholders that they actually care about, maybe just people within the U.S. So you could limit it that way, although that would just be sort of you imposing a limit on this. You know, economists would really look at it in terms of the net benefits being generated. But again, you know, there's potentially so many net benefits and it would be hard to include all of them. What's really nice is if you can include one and it's large enough that it tells you, okay, we need to stop (laughs) all this nutrient runoff. So in our mangrove paper, all we looked at was carbon in mangroves. And just looking at that one ecosystem service, we said we should stop deforesting mangroves at such rapid rate. So when looking at something like carbon sequestration at a global scale, I imagine you get to work with people from many different disciplines, including scientists. So what is it like working with scientists at these large scales in human and natural coupled systems? Yeah, well, you know, I really enjoy working with ecologists because I think economists, you know, a lot of the work I do is in this world coupled human natural systems, right, where you have humans operating in these systems and they're interacting with the resource or the environment and they're getting feedbacks from that natural system that affect their behavior and then their behavioral changes then go on to affect the natural resource or the environment. And so economists working in this area, I think have done a pretty good job at understanding how to characterize dynamics of human resource use in response to environmental change. But it's the ecologists that are really focused on the nuances of how the environment is changing and the complexity in that environmental system. And so getting new ideas from talking to ecologists is always a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, can you tell us about a project uh, you're working on right now with ecologists? One of the projects we're working on right now is a recreational, essentially open access lake fisheries landscape in northern Wisconsin, where there's all these lakes that are clustered pretty closely together, and people from all over the state or even outside of the state come and fish here recreationally, And all you need is a license, but there's no limit on effort. And in these systems, you have homeowners around the lakes that are forming lake associations, and they're investing in stocking fish into the lakes, and DNR is also stocking. And so you have all these stakeholder groups. And we're really interested in, I am interested in the economics of investing in these systems. And I'm really learning a lot about stocking from the ecologist. And one of the things that people have raised is it's very possible that stocking really doesn't do much to increase abundance. This might be just a perceptions thing. People might believe that stocking leads to more fish, but the empirical evidence for that, at least in a lot of systems, is 
pretty scarce and not convincingly uh, showing that stalking does impact abundance for a lot of different reasons because the fish I'm learning now are sort of optimized for living in this hatchery environment and really not that successful in a wild environmental setting. So um, it might be that there's just really high mortality and all of these other things. And I'm also learning that stalking has potentially genetic impact. Are there any data gaps that you feel scientists could should be working on more? Like, are you ever just like, raising your fist, like, why don't they know this? Well, yes, <laughs> but it's easy to say that as an outsider. Yeah. Um, one of the things that would be great to have is good information on abundance. And in a lot of systems that are probably over overstudied because we know about abundance, like salmon, there's good data, but um, in most systems, I would say, there's just really not good data on fish abundance. In northern Wisconsin, there's thousands of lakes and annual abundance information at each of those lakes, I think would be fantastic. I would love to live in a world where that existed, <laughs> but I do realize the constraints on arriving at those population estimates and how costly those are from my conversations with ecologists. Um, but abundance and also effort, you know, it would be great to have both of those key variables. If you think about coupled human natural systems, I mean, those are the two two key variables, right? The resource and the humans. And in a lot of places, we don't have good information about either of those two um, components of the system especially when it comes to recreational fishing. Commercial fishing, we're pretty good at understanding effort, but with recreational fisheries, it's not the case. Well, that's interesting. Do you think there's any um, like low-hanging fruit to obtain effort data for recreational fisheries? I'm just thinking of like advances in technology like social media. I think that in the future, that type of data is going to be better provided. And, you know, one of the things that we thought about for measuring effort in the system was looking at satellite data. Are there good aerial photographs or satellite data where we can actually count boats on a lake, for instance? And for some lakes, there are the frequency with which this data are generated are, you know, is pretty low. And so I think that in the future, there's going to be better coverage and higher frequency as it becomes cheaper and cheaper. In terms of social media, yeah, there's a lot of people that have wanted to use app data as a metric for understanding resource use. The problem with that that isn't going to go away, I think, is just that these are, this is a non-random sample, right? People volunteer to go on these apps and it might be only certain types of people that do this, and they might be only reporting certain types of activities. Maybe successes are reported more than failures, and in terms of catching something, I think that all of that great volume of data that's being generated in terms of social media hasn't really been of huge value yet. And so last question, just what keeps you up at night or what excites you about resource environmental economics? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, didn't start out as an economist, but I 
really have come to appreciate the field and a part of that I think is appreciating limitations of the field that you're working in but the one thing I really like about economics is that it gives a really structured framework for looking at policy right should we be doing this or should we be doing that should be we be investing or should we not be investing in restoration for example So that is something that really excites me is that we can actually think about these in a systematic way, in a way that uses data and um, have, have answers and be able to provide some guidance for how we use our natural resources. Well, we at Making Waves and the Society for Freshwater Science would like to thank Sunny for her time and fresh perspective on the work economists do in resource management and the interesting questions economists and ecologists can answer when they work together. And with that, this is Julie Kelso with Making Waves.